0: Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Weekender podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at NREIonline.com. Let's jump right into this week's top news, features, and blog posts.
1: Welcome to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. Let's dive into this week's top news. Good afternoon, David. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you today? I'm doing fine. I just, no pressure, David, but I get all my news from you. So (laughs) (laughs) what have you got for me? There, there's a bit of a theme in in three of the stories from all this
0: right. week, which all relate to the concept of sharing space. So, Uh-oh. There,
1: back to the sharing we, space thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there, we, we had a story about co-living. So that's a, a, on the apartment side. Something uh-huh. about how retailers are sharing space in malls, hmm. um, and then and then co-working, which is sort of like. The thing that got us kicked off, and in addition to that, what I actually want to start with was an, was a new report that came out on an update on the most expensive office markets in the world.
1: All right, I'm I'm thinking it's uh it's got to be New York, Seattle, <laughs> L.A. Uh, in the states, and then someplace else, right? I mean, what, what's the big city outside? So this is data from CBRE and. This is
0: an annual report they do, looking at like the average occupancy costs in the the very top 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 markets, mm-hmm. and the most expensive market is actually a sub market in Hong Kong, oh, um, yeah. which is actually even more expensive than anything in the United States. Yeah, so Hong Kong the Hong Kong Central, one of the sub markets, has an average occupancy cost of $320, $322 per square foot, uh, which is actually wow. almost a hundred dollars per square foot, more even than the second most expensive market in the world, which is London. Wow. Um, and then some of the others, and then there's, in terms of the overall like top 25, a good percentage of them are actually based in Asia. So there are other, so there's another submarket in Hong Kong that's in the top five, a couple submarkets in Beijing Tokyo, uh, Shanghai, so a lot of actually places in China in addition to uh, Tokyo, Seoul also show up. For the United States, yes, you're right, New York is the which is also split into submarkets. All th- three of the major submarkets in New York are are among the top 25 most expensive. So that's Midtown, Midtown South and Downtown. And generally overall what the report found as well in addition to sort of ranking the markets is that occupancy costs overall rose about three and a, a little bit over three and a half percent pretty much every year, everywhere on a year over year comparison. So these uh, costs are rising pretty much the same pace mm. everywhere around the world.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, that's good news in, in one way and really bad news in another, right? Right. Yeah. It's good news for, you know, if you're an office landlord, obviously, yeah. Um, well,
0: yeah. I mean, if that's primarily rents, then yeah, that's the good. It's good news for the landlords. If that, has, I think they factor in other factors into into. In, I, I think it's also affected by exchange rates and some other things. Gotcha. So, okay. So 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 some so, 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 so some levels that might not even be a straight gain to the landlord, but in, in most cases, I think it probably is. But yeah, on the flip side, yeah, as an occupier, higher occupancy costs is uh, you know that hits your bottom line.
1: Well, I mean, at over three hundred dollars a square foot compared to the rent on my first apartment, I basically get two square feet to live in. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is <laughs> going to be really tight quarters. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh,
0: yeah. And in most, and most of the top 25, you're looking at over a hundred dollars per square foot. Once you get to the lower, the lower reaches of the top 25 it, it is where it gets. It yeah, starts- Once
1: you're slumming it, right? <laughs> get <out of> here.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're, you're only paying $95. Oh, foot, what, so a what a
1: bargain. What a bargain. Sign me so, up. Jeez. Yeah. All right. What what else do we need to talk about with, within that story itself? Any, anything that really jumps out at people?
0: There were a couple of markets that where costs went up fairly dramatically. It, it, they also broke out a ranking of the markets that that had the fastest year-over-year mm. year increases, and we, again, we're comparing first quarter of 2019 to the first quarter of 2018. So some of the markets where that had the largest jumps included Porto, Portugal, where uh, huh. actually costs are up 24.7%. You know, wow, man, that's a huge uh, jump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then Cape Town, South Africa, 20%. Singapore is up 17%. Budapest, 15.5%, and then Palma de Mallorca in Spain
1: is 14%. Okay, so quick, quick question. Maybe maybe it's in there, maybe it's not. No, I say huge percent. I mean, that's a huge jump for Porto, I think you said Porto, Portugal. But at yes. the same time, you know, if it was two bucks a square foot, and then it went up to you know two dollars and thirty eight cents a square foot, or or you know two fifty, that's a that's a different story than exactly. you know fifty dollars to seventy five dollars, or or a hundred dollars to one hundred fifty dollars. Did, did they say what the the cost in Porto Portugal was, or did they just have that percentage of growth? They do. I, I don't have that number in front of me, but it is in the report. The gotcha. report breaks gotcha. down all
0: of the. They're looking at, um, I think, over a hundred different markets. And then in the report itself has the data for all of them. Gotcha. Um, I think 122 markets actually. So if you look at, so yeah, you'll see what the actual numbers are. I think of those markets, the ones that are, I think Singapore is probably the most expensive. So um, it was pretty expensive. It's a pretty expensive market. And then it had a fairly large um, jump like that. Large increase.
1: Yeah. All right. What's the next story we're covering today?
0: So now we're going to go into our trio of new economy <laughs> stories, hippie commune, that, hippie commune uh, stories,
1: sorry <laughs> yeah, co-living that are going to
0: stuff affect, uh, that are all about how, you know sharing of space is affecting different sectors. So the first one is a look at the spread of of co-living in as a concept that um, is coming to various cities and how both traditional apartment owners and then interestingly developers that had that have specialized in the past on student housing are now like getting into operating co-living spaces because mm-hmm. it's a very similar business model to operating a student you know a for-profit student housing a building gotcha so and and actually one of the uh, people we talked to is
1: said co-living is actually student housing for grown-ups <laughs> that's fantastic yeah i'm I'm sure that that's Uh, I think if you did a survey of all the people who cohabitated with with fellow students during college, I think one of their favorite parts was when they didn't have to do that anymore. Uh, So I'm curious how (laughs) people are thinking about it now. Now, it's probably more of a must and a need. But is it something that you think that they're they're like, yeah, I'm okay with it or begrudgingly? Well, I just have to do it. I
0: think, you know, that's interesting, like on, on their, or their perspective, I, th- I think partly, yeah, it's uh, an expense issue, um, and it may be an income income and expense issue, and if you're going to live in a city like New York and you don't have, you can't afford what the market rents are going to be, this is going to be an option. Mm-hmm. I, it's also, it's just interesting, I guess it's appealing to people that you know, they want their room, but then they're fine with sharing, you know, the sharing common areas or sharing kitchen yeah. space and that kind of thing with, with other people. So um, although it does seem like this is w- one of the um, cohorts that this does appeal to uh, our graduate students who the traditional student housing does historically is underserved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, in some of these new projects that are coming up, it's a blend of graduate students and then young professionals living in these, these new developments. Yeah. So I think the story we did this week points out that the largest community built from the ground hub that fits in this category is in Queens it's called Alta plus and it has 422 beds in one, uh, one project. And it's mostly studio apartments and suites of bedrooms that are all rented out to roommates.
1: Interesting. So when you say studio apartments, I mean, usually a studio doesn't have a bedroom at all. But then you're saying a suite of bedrooms, so a studio apartment would be just a single person, I would think. And then the the suite of bedrooms is that kind of like the are we looking at the Brady Bunch style, where you've got two rooms connected by a bathroom, and then maybe a general living room, and you've got the same setup on the other side. So maybe they they each have their own bedroom. So there's four bedrooms and then just one living room, one kitchen. Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, I think I think that that's my sense of how the suite would be would be set up. Gotcha. Well, as, as long as you got your own bedroom, I think that's maybe slightly acceptable, but. Uh, Yeah.
0: And I guess, you know, in some cases this is, you know, I mean, in a lot of cities, roommate living is, is popular already or, or a necessity depending on your income level. And I guess this is just a way of formalizing it in a different way.
1: Yeah. Well, as long as I I think I'd love to see the floor plans for some of these places, because that that's, that's what I would want to know. I got to know how much space do we actually get here and you know, how much privacy do you get and not averse to living with somebody I've been been with my wife for 25 years. So (laughs) it's, it's worked out so far. Yeah, so. it's a good model. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty good model. I don't ex, you know I don't expect roommates just to get married for that, but you know whatever, so, to each of their own. <laughs> is there <laughs> anything else on in this report that stands out to you?
0: So there's a there's I guess two more interesting points that I found in the story. One is that so if you're a traditional student housing operator, you're obviously. That's in use for a certain part of the year. Your rent, your leases are different because mm-hmm. students are not signing 12, 12 month leases. They're signing leases for the school year. So you kind of have this typical, you know, regular cadence to how your income is coming in. What, what are the up and down times for, for your cycle? And you kind of, you know, adjust your business model accordingly. Obviously, once you start branching out into a, a building that has some students and some non-students, you're going to have people on different kinds of leases, and that's mm-hmm. going to have some impacts on on the financial bottom line. It seems like it could be a little tricky, um, you know, where you have some units that you're collecting rent for whatever nine months out of the year, and then others that are twelve, and you have these move-in, move-out periods based on based on uh, the academic calendar. So, I think from the financial level, that seems like an interesting challenge for them to. To wrestle with when you know, as opposed to like if it's just a pure dedicated student housing project, you you know you just sort of know that that's what you're going to have, as opposed to these blends. The other factor with that is then for the tenants themselves, it seems like in some of these buildings, what they're doing is separating, maybe separating by floor, so that um, on some floors is where all the student housing would be, and on other floors is where the young professionals would be to. You know, in terms of noise levels, mm-hmm. in terms of dealing with that, like schedule and all that, oh. scheduling and disruption of like lots of people moving in and out. Like you may not, you know, if you're just this is where you live, you you don't want to have to deal with these couple of times a year where you have mass mass moving and move out yeah. around the, the academic calendar. So if they can separate that to another floor. That seems like a a way that they're trying to deal with those kind of concerns.
1: Okay, now wait a second. We got to back up here for a second because now I just thought of something. So if you've got a suite, right? With let's say there's four bedrooms in this suite. Who finds the, the roommates for this? Because when I was, you know, back in the college days when we had an apartment and we had roommates, we chose who we lived with. And we say, hey, you know, let's get in a lease together or whatever. It doesn't sound like that's really a possibility for for people in the situation. At least it would be a high risk if, you know, you you get three other people together with you and then two of them move out. You know, you're not going to be able to afford half of that rent. Do they choose who lives there in each bedroom? I think I think people just apply to live
0: in the building, so oh, you may not necessarily choose who your suite mates are. That's no so bueno, I, I, man. <laughs> yeah. That's so no I, I mean, I think that. I think that's, that's that's part of the where it fits in the marketplace. Because if you do have a group of you know buddies and you're moving to a city, you can maybe just find a four you know a four bedroom, a three bedroom apartment, whatever you need. Yeah. Uh, that aligns. But if like you're you know <clears throat> a young person relocating to a city, you don't necessarily have an inroad to that. Then it's I mean in New York, it's always it's always a struggle to, like to for people trying to find those roommates. You go you end up going on Craigslist or those yeah. other you know, you're you're kinda just out in the wilderness. So this may be a way of like being more formal if you know you trust this operator or you're familiar with this company because oh they you know, this is where I lived in one of their buildings on a campus. I trust the operator, I know the amenities are gonna be good, and you know, I'll, I'll just see how I get placed.
1: Yeah, I I that's a lot of trust, man. I, I got an I got a low gag reflex and nothing against other types of foods. I eat foods from all over the world, but if somebody brings in kimchi to my apartment, yeah, uh, yeah I'm, then I'm stuck. I have to stay in my bedroom 24 hours a day. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a lot of trust. Wow. Okay. Well, so maybe that's also like
0: why some of them are studio setups and some of them are suites. So yeah. like you're kind of, you know, like if you really don't want to have that shared experience, you can get <laughs> the studio and maybe the only thing you're sharing are the common areas in the building as opposed to having like a shared living room that yeah.
1: you are sharing with three four other people yeah yeah that's uh that'll be interesting we'll see how that all pans out now you had, you had mentioned one of the stories or i think that the third of this trifecta is about uh, mall landlords right you know kind of benefiting from retail space sharing
0: that's correct so this is yeah this is sort of a i think a theme that we have talked about and will be a theme in our coverage going ahead is the retail sector is facing challenges, has a lot of vacancy, is going through a transformation in terms of omni-channel retail and how that's affecting existing retailers and who's coming in and who's coming out. Mm-hmm. So it seems like one of the ways that people are dealing with that is sharing some of their space. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like maybe, so like, and it, I, I'm not sure if it's technically a sublease or if it's a slightly different legal arrangement. That's one, um, one question I actually had um, that about this when we've reported it out. Um, But basically what it is is an existing retailer can then license the space, license part of their space out for perhaps a very short amount of time, like up to like a week or perhaps up to a whole year to have um, another retailer sharing their space.
1: Hmm. So when, when, when somebody gets into a retail building like that, it's usually build a suit. Right, they're they're usually creating that space for them. Uh, specifically, that's part of the contract. But when you're doing a shared development like this, are are we talking shared open spaces, and they just have to kind of work with the space that's already created, or will they will they do like if they're coming in and they're going to put in a, a small coffee shop within a larger retail space that they're going to actually kind of build something within?
0: I get the sense that it's it's not like a hard build out kind of situation. It's more mm-hmm. like uh you know we're just going to clear some space out within the store for you to operate your sub brand, almost like a kiosk or something in it. So it. I, I don't I don't know, like, I think the hard costs might not be as high as if it was, you know, literally like subdividing the space.
1: So David, a moment ago, you you mentioned that it could be a short-term arrangement, like a week or up to a year. What, what kind of companies are you seeing or what kind of businesses do you think are going in there for a short-term week, two weeks, a month, just to, to have that one space? I
0: think it's primarily, online retailers who are trying to figure out if they should be opening stores. So, Uh, you know, I think, and and in that case, it could be any, any of these startups that you're seeing that are primarily at this point, like doing subscriptions or the the model of like, where you, you know, like, like quip, you know, think about like the toothbrush company now Mm -hmm. where they send you your brush heads on like a, on a regular basis, whatever you select right now, I think they're primarily pushing themselves online through on a lot of podcasts. Gotcha. Because one of the things that, that I think is driving this is that when people hear about products like that, but then when they run into a physical location, studies have found that then people are more likely to to buy it. So hmm. it could be a situation where like, okay, Quip doesn't need most likely to have a store open 365 days a year. But they may want to do a quick pop-up in each market, just to like so people can see the product and 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 feel uh, it out. Absolutely. So that's that's a, that's a way to get exposure. I think the study that from ICSE was that um, once opening a new physical store in a market results in an average of a thirty-seven percent increase in overall traffic to the retailer's website. Oh wow. So, so I, th- th- I could see like that being an example of somebody that may, you know, may never open a full store, but may want to do these things on a rolling basis around the country just to help boost their sales.
1: Yeah. Or, or somebody even seasonal, right? I mean, that'd be the other thing is that yeah. you get in there for a seasonal period, you're going to open for the two, two months before Christmas, um, right. or you're going to open, you know, around the 4th of July holiday if you've got certain, you know, stuff that you're going to sell for that. I mean, that would make a lot of sense, you know, just to be in there for one month or, or even less. Right. And that's certainly the way that pop up shops have historically worked. You know, I think
0: the distinction between this activity and the historical pop up stores is that a lot of times the, a pop up store will be taking a vacant space, like exactly taking over yep. a vacant space for a short amount of time. In this case, we're talking about an operating retailer sort of doing the same thing now. Like we're going to turn, you know, turn over some of our space to a, a what would essentially also be like a pop up retail experience.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you can't, you can't fill a huge space like that all the time. And we had a a local Target store that had closed down. They relocated and that, that building stayed vacant for probably six months. And all of a sudden around springtime, an outdoor store popped up there for, you know, about five months and then they were gone and then they came back the next year. And so they just, they, they were there for six months and then they're gone and, and, and come back, uh, you know, the, the next year for a little bit as well. I mean, but that's big items, right? I mean, those are right. outdoor furniture and things like that. You can fill a huge space and it's something that's timely and people are going to be shopping there just because it's new and, and oh, look at this outdoor store. I'm going to go in there and check it out and and they'll be able to make that kind of money. But yeah, for smaller retailers, this this sounds like a pretty good idea just to be able to pop in for a little bit short time and, and then then out. Um, how much control right. does the the main store, I guess the main owner of the property have over these smaller shops? I think they have a lot because I think basically what this is, it's like the air, like Airbnb
0: for retail. So oh, okay, ultimately the primary tenant, it's still their space. Uh, they still have probably, you know, liability, all the other issues. So they probably have a good amount of say over what the pop-up is allowed to do.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean that, that, well, as long as they've got control, I think it might be actually really beneficial. That's yeah. great.
0: What this potentially does from the retailer on the, you know, these smaller retailers is that it allows a, another way to kind of get exposure to the, to the, to doing a physical store that's somewhere in between doing a temporary pop-up store, a full pop-up store mm-hmm. for like six months or whatever, and not being, not having a store at all. This is a, a, a or, or like, a, you know, the, I think the other traditional way that maybe people do this is just doing like kiosks in, yeah. um, inside of a mall. mm mm-hmm. But this, rather than doing the kiosk in a common area, you're doing something that's similar to a kiosk inside of another
1: retailer's operation. Well, I mean, it, it works both ways, right? I mean, if if the small re- retailer inside a larger store, they're getting foot traffic, right? right. Can, they can do all their own marketing. They can do all their own advertising. They can draw people to it, telling them where they're at. But then just the foot traffic of going into the big, big store, they're going to get exposure that way. And then on the larger retailer side, same thing. When the smaller retailer is doing their marketing and telling people where they're at, you know, people that specifically go there for that small retail space, they have to walk through the big store and maybe something catches their eye and they, oh, they see a sale that's going on. And so they're going to get more exposure and more customers through that means. Yeah, I think that's a really good point.
0: That actually also gives a larger retailer almost a way to event plan their, their main space by, giving, mm-hmm. you know, like in addition to whatever way they might be rolling their, their own merchandise by having like, you know, we're going to have so-and-so, you know, popping up here for this week or this month. Yeah. um That's a way to get their core customers to
1: come back to check something else out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. What is our next story
0: on on our journey of how, spaces are being more flexible or sharing we had a, another piece this week on uh flexible office space mm. and it's sort of like the latest developments there because obviously co-working you know we were all that stuff's been around now around for a number of years it's i think it's it's the success of co-working spaces is what's leading to these kind of experimentations in the other um, mm-hmm. sectors so this was with this story that we did this week was looking at what what's happening in the co-working space. What are some of the new amenities that, that are being offered as, you know, competition heats up for, for
1: that market? So kind of like you just stated, it's, I mean, this has been around for a while in, in a way because you can rent small offices or small groups of offices from a larger, larger building. So a co-op if you want or whatever you want to call it, but those are really short term. It sounds to me like this is more of a, we're, we're going to build this group together. Right. And is is it more of a, uh, you can't do this month to month. You've got to do this, you know, it's got to be by the year. Got to be, I mean, how does that work?
0: Well, I think what's, what's happening is there is a lot of competition now among um, the operator, co-working operators. There, there are more options for potential tenants. So yeah, they're trying to lock people in. They're trying to attract people. They're trying to differentiate themselves. Mm -hmm. I think, The first level of coworking was, you know, we're going to offer you a nice space, fast internet, you know, maybe some basic amenities, uh, snacks or other things that are on site. It seems like now we're going next level because in addition to the historical people like WeWork or Convene or some of these other people that have always specialized in doing coworking spaces or that have really emerged as Mm -hmm. the specialists in the past couple of years, other landlords, a traditional office landlords, are trying to get in on the action themselves. They may have space in their build now. They have space in their buildings that they are uh, turning into the co-working space that they're just trying to operate themselves. So that so you, like any market, once you have more competition and you're trying to get people to come back uh, and use your space more often, um, how do you differentiate? So things like now, I mean, for for WeWork in particular. They have added a gym concept so that really? so people like you know in addition to like going to the co working space oh we can you know can run down and go to go to their gym too hmm. uh, so it's like on site. They also recently uh, acquired Meetup, which is a social network yep. that uh, facilitates in person gatherings. So they're trying to make like I guess like a more integrated offering. So people who are using the WeWork space may have some kind of you know, way to tie in using the Meetup app. Other people are doing things like trying to find other uses for the co-working space when it's not being used as co-working space, like turning it into event space or or things that can be done on weekends. And then a last thing that I, that some of them are doing, I th- well, thought one of the more interesting examples was that in uh, a building in Dallas, this one owned by a traditional. Uh, office landlord, they're added. They added a whiskey lounge as an amenity um, hey, available <laughs> both to the people that are in the co-working space and their traditional tenants.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a great addition for for those that want to do some entertaining.
0: Yeah, entertaining, networking. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that way, you know, because I think it's there's becoming much more, many more options. I know even in. The building we're located in, suddenly there's now a floor that's for co-working and they added a coffee shop that's basically available to the whole building Now we can get go down and rather than having to run out to go down the street to Starbucks or something, we actually have now a, a coffee shop that's like just a few a few floors below us.
1: Nice. Yeah. And then, then it, it's always nice to have a bit more community. You, you know, you go to work the same time every day, see the same people every day in the elevator, up and down, barely say hi, so on and so forth. And then now you've got a spot where... Maybe actually get a chance to have a conversation Huh, that's that's good, I like that,
0: yeah, I don't know we'll have to see, we'll have to see where where all of we where we end up with co-working, but it seems like it's increasingly taking over the sector,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely well, I mean it's it makes sense financially, so all right, anything else about this story or are we moving on to the last? We can move on to our our last item of the week where we'll finally
0: move out of our sharing stories into something into a different topic all right. So the last piece that I wanted to touch on was um, based on what's happening with non-traded REITs, and um, that they, there was we had some new data that came out from Robert A. Stanger and Company, who's sort of the uh, authority on tracking non-traded REITs, that found that year-to-date that that sector has raised uh, $2.7 billion at least through April which is more than double, a little bit more than double what uh, the same, what the non-traded REIT
1: sector wow. had raised uh, in the same period in 2018. Hmm. Dang, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's huge. Doubled it. More than double. like you said. That's, that's yeah. huge. So what, what does that mean? I mean, what does that, what does that tell us? I mean, it's obviously good
0: news for, for non-traded REITs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that industry has had its some ups and downs because, since the the shares don't trade on open markets, there have been you know it, it doesn't benefit from from much happening with the share price. There's also there's always been some concerns about transparency and liquidity, and and sometimes you're you're you have to own the the shares for a certain amount of time. You can't just sell mm-hmm. them yeah. um, once you buy them. So in recent years, the, what the sector has done is made made some efforts partially. Pushed by uh, re- new regulate new financial regulations to be more pr- transparent to have more regular reporting to also they they have increasing options for ways to uh, on some of these reads to 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 sell the you know you're not locked in as long when you buy the shares so I think all those sort of things all those different steps they've taken to uh, respond to concerns from from the marketplace is now you know has led to them you know seeing some buy you know increased buy in from investors.
1: Hmm. All right anything else we need to know about this story i think the other piece
0: of it was that the data that they had put out again from stanger was that the non listed REITs on a 3 year period with uh, cumulative returns were a little bit above what what the publicly traded REITs at least for for that period so that's that was another sort of interesting point but i think for 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 you know for that piece it's probably people can you know go visit the, the site we have a chart as well with the story and kind of dig into dig into what some of the numbers uh there say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What's the what's the site again for listeners? Well, Nrionline.com. Perfect. All right, David, thank you so much. This is a great recap of the week. All right, Thank you so much for your
0: time and for uh, walking me through the stories and thanks to our listeners for for tuning in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you all. Like David said, thank you for listening to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodimer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with the new podcast with all those new stories, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at the NREI Weekender, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week for all the news that matters to you. See you soon. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and
0: posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NERI Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.